Hello, welcome to Graphic Policy Radio. This is your host, Elon Eleven, and this is the podcast for the sort of activist nerds who are pretty sure they've phone banked each of Crazy Jane's alters and to have a numerical score for each interaction. That's right, we are back today to talk about Doom Patrol Season 2. It's an excellent show on the DC streaming service, which I also use to read things like actual Doom Patrol comics. The show... This show, as in Graphic Policy Radio, has covered Doom Patrol before. We had an episode that was a largely spoiler-free episode covering um, episodes one and two of season one to just give folks a sense of, like, do they want to watch the show or not? That episode is called To Doom Patrol or Not To Doom Patrol, which the Sci-Fi Network says is a can't-miss episode of the podcast, so check it out. And then we also had another episode at the end of season one looking at the whole season as a whole. Today, we're jumping on to season two, and that means that we are assuming that you have watched the entirety of season two. So if you haven't and you want to avoid spoilers, go back, listen to the earlier coverage and watch the show, and then you get ready to join us. But for those of us who have plowed through the entire series, this is this is it. We are ready. We're here. And joining me are two awesome guests. The first is a returning guest, Sarah Daniel Rasher. Sarah is an erstwhile professor of Shakespeareology who now is tries to save the world through educational data. They also occasionally write about figure skating and Star Trek on the internet. You may remember them from joining our Game of Thrones finale coverage about a year ago. God, was it that long ago? Welcome back, Sarah. Thanks for having me. Yay. And joining me is a new first-time guest. Wynne Periasami is a Fordham Law student and advocate working and organizing in New York City. She has her master's in public health, and her writing has appeared in The Guardian, The Nation, and more. You can follow Wynne at W-P-E-R-I-Y-A-S-A-M-Y. And uh, you can probably also guess how Wynne and I know each other. Welcome to the show, Wynne. Nice to be here. Well, we each are coming at this um, with a uh, a different sort of orientation to the show. So... I, you know, have, I read a lot of DC comics as well as other comics. Uh, I have not read the entirety of the Doom Patrol comics, but I have read a good chunk of Doom Patrol comics. I don't watch, however, I don't watch the sort of Greg Berlanti land DC universe TV shows um, myself. Meanwhile, Sarah, you're like a major watcher of, um, which one is it? Um, I am very, very into um, Legends of Tomorrow, which is about as close to the Doom Patrol aesthetic as you're going to get on the CW. I have seen (laughs) at least some of all of the uh, CW DC like Arrowverse shows. Most of them I really enjoyed for a few seasons and then got really tired of as they started doing the same thing over and over um legends has the advantage of like not being able to keep consistent cast members for more than two seasons so it is constantly forced (laughs) to find something new to do with itself um but i am generally versed in um sort of the the dc tv universe and how it functions and how doom patrol fits in or doesn't fit into that got it and then when you're coming at this from a different tv angle as well yeah, I um so I don't read a lot of DC comics. It's basically if I find something that's interesting in its adaptation format, I might go backwards and try and like read a bit of what 
of their respective runs that are pretty celebrated. But for Doom Patrol, um, I had I was curious about them from Titan. So both they had a minuscule appearance in like the 2000s Teen Titans TV show, and then they showed up in the live action Titans, which mm-hmm. is fine. Um, it's I I'm not particularly impressed, but I'm I I'm watching it. Um, and then <laughs> I <laughs> um, it's a it's a solid B. Um, and I thought their episode on Titans was fine. I didn't know that where Beast Boys, um, I didn't know Beast Boy was part of the Doom Patrol, um, like truly part of the Doom Patrol. Um, mm-hmm. And and then I uh, kept on hearing about this show and Swamp Thing and through this podcast was just finally given an opportunity to binge it. And I have never seen anything like it. And I And I say that in a completely good way. I was about five episode, five or six episodes in when my fiance, who basically watches nothing but anime and Star Trek, um, came, sat down and she said, I really like this show. Can we watch it together? Um, and of course I said, yes, thank goodness. And we watched it together and she also loves it. And if we need her, she's like two rooms over. She gave me the gift of an actual brick with Danny Brick Company etched into it, which is now the like best gift. in our kitchen, covered yes. in um, pride beads and like plastic flowers. So <laughs> <laughs> you also now know who my favorite character is. We'll get back to that, I'm sure. Yes. Yes. So, you know, this show has really resonated with people each with a kind of different orientation towards DC's TV properties and comics or not, etc. Um, and one of the things that's been interesting to me to hear is sort of the public discourse around the show where prior to even prior to it getting picked up by HBO, it already was a thing where people were talking about it as being an example of prestige TV. And I thought that was pretty funny because the show is extremely genre. It's also excellent. I don't know that I view it as being coherent with the sort of stuff that gets talked about as prestige TV. And I almost felt like it was people giving themselves an excuse to watch something that they wouldn't have let themselves watch otherwise. And I kind of felt like they were embarrassed for themselves and that that was highly silly. But, uh, you know, I would love to get you guys' thoughts about like how this show with its tone, its production values and style, like fits in with, you know, DC's television universe or with like the whole notion of like this being an HBO show now. Um, It's weird. Like I only really saw it being referred to as prestige TV after I'd seen it. And I have been watching a lot of decidedly non prestige TV during the pandemic. And really my impression of it is that it's really more just fun genre TV with a budget. Mm -hmm. So it's able to do some cool things visually the production values, yes, but also just the fact that it really cares about its art direction is sets it up, sets it above, you know, a lot of the stuff that that we're offered um, in genre television that doesn't have as a, a, as good of a budget. Like, I'm very happy to see them spending it on things like costumes and set or, and scenery, etc. Because that stuff yeah. matters. Yeah, totally. I when I watched it, so I was I was having a very good, a, a very strange DC month in that I used in the in the same 
two weeks that I was watching this show, I also used Batman v Superman to fall asleep a couple times um, during some insomnia spells. It worked, which is not a good thing, but also a good thing. Um, And I also, um, my roommate and I binged through the Watchmen show, which I, I don't think Watchmen falls technically under DC, but was, is a, is in terms of prestige and superheroes of the, of the 2019-2020 sort of moment, um, I was. It was interesting to to read some discourse, being like, "Well, if Watchmen hadn't come out in 2019, this would be the best superhero TV show, and this this definitely is up there in um, in 2019 TV shows." Which makes me like sort of think, um, I, like think that you're right in terms of um, people trying to give them self a break for watching it, which I, I, if someone had, I just had heard Doom Patrol coming up over and over again. And if someone had told me a non-binary street that speaks solely in signs and, and props was on a TV show, living a very kind and generous life, I, that would have been enough for me. I, I would have mm-hmm. absolutely started watching this immediately, but I think it's so it's so indulgent and joyful in its imagination across departments. Um, I, the way that I've been selling it to people as I've been watching it is like, what if um, the first trailer of Suicide Squad, the movie was actually what we got and it was on TV. (laughs) Um, Cause like that, this is what I thought Suicide Squad was going to be. I thought it was going to be just absolutely just all in on imagination and creativity and really understanding what it means to be um, reluctant about being a hero while also just trying your best um, mm-hmm. throughout just uncanny circumstances. And this show is just, I, this is what like, I, I assume superhero adaptations should be. I yeah. love it. Yeah, and I want to see the Suicide Squad movie that you that you thought this might be because that I would also like be it's, awesome. this would have been great. <laughs> like I would have absolutely watched Suicide Squad if this is what it had looked like in the end. Yeah, it's I really I like um, the idea of it as prestige. Really, is strange to me because when it's sort of like if I was going to go through my recommended if you like list everything I would recommend if you like this is sort of um, lower budget, equal level of like, you know, caring about norms or, you know, equally invested in its own whimsy and its own weirdness, but just not nearly as polished. And in some cases, not nearly as well acted, but Mm -hmm. it's like, it gets mentioned in the same breath as Umbrella Academy a lot. And I think that that's a fair comparison. Although Doom Patrol is definitely better. Like it's of higher quality than the CWD shows, but it's definitely the same approach. It's, you know, um, Flash versus Giant, Flash versus Sentient Gorilla. Like we get that there too. Um, But it's also like, like, I don't feel like it's similar to Watchmen or Game of Thrones or... Um, Westworld really at all um, which are the mm. things that I think people who are apologizing for watching it are trying to 
compare it to. If there's yeah, another yeah. prestige show that has anything to do with it, it's um, The Good Fight on CBS All Access, which also like is just invested in its own message and its own whimsy. But I think that that's really rare among prestige TV in a way that makes this feel like, to me, it's more like that's a meaningless label anyway. Right. I mean, I think one of the things that this has that people have rightly, you know, latching on to, in addition to like the excellent production values and design work is the, uh, I think that, you know, all of the quality of the performances are really excellent. And that, that hasn't been universally the case through DC's TV properties. But I, I found myself like this season versus the last season, there were a lot of episodes in this season that just really made me tear up. The the introduction uh, where you see Dorothy in the circus um, early in season two, I was crying. It like it was a great episode, but also like ruined my night. Do you know what I mean? It was like that upsetting, and I'm just you know so whenever Dorothy is sad, I'm just like ah my heart. The actress who plays her, Abigail Shapiro, is tremendous. Um, like she's twenty for the record, folks. This is an adult playing a, a, like an 11 year old girl, like um, amazingly well. And, um, and, and just, but like from the second you open up with that scene of her, like in the cage where they're mocking her as she has to conjure up her imaginary friend avatar and her like little red monkey nose. I guess I shouldn't, but it's like, I don't know how to describe it. Her little red nose is like so tragic. I just like wanted to give her all the tissues and all the hugs and like, kidnap her away from this just disgusting evil place that she's been kept and i felt like the amount of sort of sadness and you know trauma has been there throughout the whole series but i think this season just really made me cry a lot (laughs) as well as being funny but definitely more waterworks yeah i think it's interesting to i i was wondering what it would look like to have a season without mr nobody which i think a lot of people based on the discourse I've seen online, we're curious about as well, because mm-hmm. um, Alan Todiak just did such a great job with that character. And I think that um, Dorothy, honestly, like she's she's not an antagonist, but her pain and her fear is where a lot of the trauma of the season, the new trauma of the season comes from. And I think that that's, I, I find her very... Um, I find her really great because as I understand it, this character was not originally um, was not originally Niles's daughter was not like not like did not have that like have these similar relationships with maybe anyone except for the candle maker. Um, but I thought that it was a really smart choice to make her his daughter because mm-hmm. he is is a man who um, seems to be just working on being a better man throughout the decades but keeps on making these mistakes and i was thinking a lot about like intergenerational trauma and like what happens when someone is just trying their best both from the parent perspective as well as the child perspective but just does not have the tools and um and, and does not have therapy, which I think a lot of shows would end very differently, very much sooner if, uh, 
like universal <laughs> guaranteed mental health care was available um both in mm. fiction and in real life but i think um but i i i found that that performance very heartbreaking and understandable and complex because um it's a character that's both writing um like a very childlike presence but is over 100 years old and uh it was one of the few sort of performances that i've seen where i'm like i'm okay with a 20 year old playing a person uh ostensibly like eight years younger than them because i think there's a complexity of like both like a child like wonder and adult sort of wariness and dread that you um and and the inability to express yourself that i found um very moving and very understandable and sympathetic in her. I when when um she asks Danny, were you my prison or my friend? And Danny is just like, oh sweetie. Oh, that I, gutted me. I love a show that gives you that question to ask in the first place. Do you know what I mean? Like Yeah. I think it's a brave thing for her to ask and it was a brave thing for such a kind character to admit. And I think that um, uh, even being that level of honest in what you want to know and what you need, what you owe telling someone else you've hurt um, is a, is a step forward for a, like, it's a move forward for, <laughs> for a cast of very traumatized characters. Um, and and it's just a very, it's just a very brave thing to to act, and a gut wrenching thing to see on on screen. And her character from the comics is like inspired by Dorothy from Wizard of Oz. So you know that's why when you first see her, she's wearing all these pinafores. She's evoking what that looked like, and it was so seeing her from this season, you know, going from being like Dorothy with the pinafore and the braids to a more modern outfit at the very end that, you know, is like also part of her growing up, but also divorcing herself from this sort of mythical realm that is like a, I mean, I actually haven't read the Oz books, but I know that they're like, they have a lot of satire and they are, um, but they're like satire that's like wrapped around you know, some political work and also like aimed at kids. So it was sort of interesting seeing her kind of move from being Dorothy in the Wizard of Oz and, but also this uncanny figure herself and then like becoming more of a girl in the real world. You know, she gets her period. She has this interaction with the woman at the Quickie Mart and it's just like, you know, the next thing you know, she's wearing an outfit kind of similar to Elle from, um, what was it? the 80s with the 80s show stranger things mm-hmm. um and like having an emotional breakdown in the in the almost finale um i think it's great that you two love dorothy so much because i was just i didn't dislike her and i certainly found the season two arc really fascinating but i had absolutely nothing invested in her emotionally and like i'm glad that i'm alone in that like i because <laughs> To me, the show is so is so much about that core group of non-heroes that mm-hmm. I felt like that's just not where I was placing my my emotional resonance. And whenever anything um, rose up surrounding her or her feelings or her needs, I was 
over there just like worrying about Rita. Um, <laughs> like that's just how I interact with this show. And so I really see her more narratively than as a character almost, which is probably unfair. But it's great to hear that you guys were having that reaction. And it's like you're, you, especially you describing that interaction with Danny, which for me was all about Danny admitting regret, which was just a really powerful turn for that character mm-hmm. who is incredibly alive despite not being played by an actor. Um, <laughs> yeah. Like the definition of a character being played by the environment. Um, and, um, should I hold off on rambling about Danny? No, do, let's do it. No, talk, no. talk about Danny. Um, this is a Danny fan club. Yeah, um, I think that the Danny fan club is universal. Like, if you like this show, you love Danny. Mm-hmm. Um, and the and Danny is fascinating because Danny is like the exact opposite of the sort of culturally perceived idea of a superhero to me. Like, like super being a superhero is all about action. And Danny can't really do things in the way that we think of people with human or human-like bodies doing. Um, but what Danny can do is become a sanctuary. And um, I think that that's really powerful, the idea of, you know, some people go out there and fight and some people create the safe place. Um, and it's a, it's a, it's a version of, of heroism and of kindness that like we know in the real world to be true and that you see a lot outside of genre fiction, but that you don't necessarily see a lot in a way where they don't suddenly turn out to be evil. Yeah. Yeah. I think for me, um, I, so I actually, I think I probably fall in the middle of you two actually, because um, Dorothy didn't, um, uh, Dorothy didn't grab me for the first couple of episodes. I I also found her to be a bit of a narrative tool, and I was just I want to go back to figuring out what's happening to Jane. I want to spend time with Bick, um, and I I just wanted to spend time with like because I thought season one did such a good job of setting up those five characters that it was very hard to sort of open <laughs> open my heart up to like someone to someone new especially a character that I couldn't quite understand and seemed to be someone who was mainly to be protected or feared but not understood but I thought that interaction with Danny actually really opened my like uh, opened mm-hmm. me up to understanding and sympathizing with Dorothy because um, because Danny is a sanctuary um, Danny is a is a home and for and I but it it in making Danny imperfect and it I also just wondered what it would be like to be on the other side of that because Danny is so loved by everyone that that is that seems like such a painful thing to experience that that Danny could not be a home to you and home to you only. Oof. But Sarah, I think you were had some parallels you were drawing between Danny and um, like jail support work. 
Yeah. Um, so I've been doing jail support work in Chicago, um, which started as a way to sort of protect and assist protesters. And then what's happened here and a number of other places is the realization that much more than even the protesters, the people who need that support are just the everyday people who are being released from jail. So I got into this work when it had more transition to that. We're just out there every night kind of um, giving people water and cigarettes and a ride home. Um, and it's the first really sort of like consistent on the ground activist work I've done in a long time, partially just because I have kind of an activist job. Um, but it's, but my approach to it, has, like Danny has really inspired my approach to it that like so much of activism is that sort of superhero. Like you have to go out and call people and talk to them and be on the street and wave a sign and um, be noisy and be active. And that those are things that it's like, that is not taking advantage of my skill set. And I am not the person you want cold calling strangers. Um, and so sort of thinking about like, on the one hand, there are those limitations, but on the other hand, I am a person who owns a car, has the entire like geography of the city of Chicago kind of mapped in my brain. And like, I'm not afraid of going anywhere and I'm happy to be awake until, you know, forever doing this. And like that, that's an unusual skill set in itself. And to just sort of um, expand the idea that that's not just, you know, sort of service volunteering, but that doing work like this, where the response we get from basically everybody who comes by our little tent is like, who are you and why are you doing this? And why is free? And why didn't this exist before? <laughs> and like, just this shock that like, this never existed before and suddenly existed. And it's just there. Um, and which is a very Danny like way to be yes. it's like, we popped in from nowhere with our purple tent and our little speaker playing cla <laughs> um, like 70s soul. And we've got water and Gatorade for you. And you have your choice of cigarette types. And like, there's just no judgment and there's no like, what did you do and who are you? And there's no like, Oh, I can't take you to that neighborhood. There's just, you are somebody who has had a very bad day or a very bad week or a very bad month. And we are going to be really, really nice to you. Um, and like that in itself, and a there's a lot of conversations among the people who are doing this about the degree of um, direct communication about um, like a police defunding and um, abolishment of the prison system that we should be communicating to people and um, and it's like, I don't want to take too much of a side on it because I know that there's like people who are going to be listening to this from that community afterward. But there's this sense that like, regardless of how much one decides to do or decides not to do in that respect, like we're doing activism just by showing up and being a counter narrative to how people think the world works. I love that. It's so powerful. And, you know, like the second you told me that 
you were thinking about like Danny and in that light uh, with doing jail support work, my brain was just like, this is amazing. We have to make sure you talk about this. So thank you for that. And for folks, you know, if there's jail support work happening in lots of different cities, and it especially is important when there's uprisings in your community, and it can be a good way to help out if you are not able to go to protests yourself. Um, so one of the, uh, one of the other cool things about Doom Patrol is like, it's really not copaganda. And I watch plenty of, you know, copaganda adjacent things in my day, but it's fun to have a superhero type show that just isn't doing that. When you have those cutaways to the, um, the stone and steel, uh, 70s cop show and Cliff Steele's mind, for example, like he's having a good old time, but it's also patently ridiculous. And you like immediately see how things do not play out that way in real life. And you immediately see that like getting that guy's finger cut off is actually not an acceptable uh, kind of injury to have happened to somebody in the situation that he's in. And so I, 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 I'm glad that the show has continued to have ways to have, you know, to have characters wrestle with authority and with evil and all of that. And it has nothing to do with like just regular people. Like there is, you do have a moment where, uh, Rita, the beekeeper, as she calls herself, like does stop a mugging, you know, but just generally speaking, like this is a superhero show that isn't really going in that direction. And when it hits on different kinds of cops, it's, it's not telling you that that makes sense or that that's a rational thing or a thing that can really function in the world. Yeah. I really liked how it interacts with the idea of heroes and superheroes because, and as well as like the institutions and structures that they're working within, whether it's um, scientists or government officials or um, some of the examples around cops that you've mentioned, because I think it really reminded me of the idea um, that I come back to in advocacy all the time is that the work is good, but the work is human. So it's um, so Silas is doing the best that he can all the time by um, by his son, by in relation to Niles. Um, but he is also making these mistakes that really hurt the people around him. Um, Niles, the same, um, these government uh, scientists, I, I think it, it reminds me that, um, that none of these structures are, it, it just grounds, it's, it's good to see a piece of fiction that is talking about like all of these structures that have flaws to them and that we are, it is okay to challenge them. Um, it's, it's a civic duty and a right. And that like, even the things that we are describing as heroes, I mean, uh, the, the, the ripping off of a finger and the way that it got, had those like kind of dark tones of humor in, in the kitchen. I was just thinking, um, yeah, all of this, like all of these things that we're told to look up to either by society or through pop culture, there are deep potentials for flaws and harms that we should be questioning and interacting with. And even though we do not have a robot man or a or a, a, a person with 64 different personalities and wild abilities attached to them, um, the people who we hold up, to, like hold up as examples, the institutions we look to um, for support, um, including and especially the pol- uh, police, but also other spaces that have some kind of 
policing um, in them, we should be constantly we should be constantly asking them to be better. And if they are not listening or if they are like uh, if they are retaliating against us for asking for basic needs, we should not we should not take that as a thing as a reason to be silent. We should keep on asking asking questions and wanting better and changing our tactics to push for that. Yeah. I mean, I do love, I don't think that Doom Patrol is unique in being a superhero show or a fantasy show that is really strongly resisting being propaganda. I can. Oh, absolutely. But it reminds me of like my biggest problem with the X-Men always. And I love the X-Men is this assumption that like having um, unique abilities makes you want to be a hero to the point where even if your unique abilities aren't all that useful, you will go try to be in the X-Men. And one of the things that really draws me to Doom Patrol is that while they are intermittently heroic, um, there's that wonderful line in season one from Rita um, to Larry saying, like, we're the ones who don't do anything. And that that's that's part of their identity, that like part of their identity is being a terrible disappointment because they just have no instinct to be heroic, that they have to overcome that lack of instinct when they realize that there's something they can do to help. And for Rita, it's often playing a role and like she's acting the hero rather than being one. Larry, I could, you know, write, write you a book on where that's coming from and how that evolves. But yeah, it's very resistant of that narrative of like, being able to jump in and save people makes you like decide you have to do that. Well, I do want to talk about Larry for sure. I mean, you know, he's someone who came from a position of putting himself as like, I'm the space hero. I'm the protagonist. I have these abilities, you know, and like he's super hypercritical of everybody else and was certainly a man of action. And then when he has his crisis, when he has an accident, when his body is transformed, all of that, you know, gets gets he throws the, all of all of that away for so long. Um, I I, uh, I I'd love to hear folks' thoughts about him reconnecting with his family this season, or his uh, you know original family, I should say. I think Larry is a great example of um, just because you I, of the show doing a good job of understanding that just because they did a couple of um, climactic battles um, and just because they solved uh, or not solved, he came to like, uh, you come to peace with a part of your trauma does not mean that you don't have far more work to do. Um, Mm. And I think, I think Larry uh, in episode one um, of season two, there's a moment where he's going, wait, I dealt with this. I, this is, this is past me. I've done This happened. Like I figured this out months ago and it's him thinking that it was one issue that he had to deal with i think it was relating to his lost love um in season one uh was what he thought he had like he was being exposed to but really it was having to do with um uh unpacking that he also had a family that he left behind that um that because of what happened to him and also his own actions um, he lost that uh, he lost a number of chances 
um, to be with them and that his actions and the things that had happened to him had repercussions for his children and for his family and for his grandchildren. Um, that was, that was a very interesting, that wasn't a very interesting story to me because I think he, he, he doubles back on some old behaviors of wanting to run away, wanting to think that he, he is the problem and he can't, it's too late. He's, if he acts, he's going to mess things up and him having to go, no, I, I have to work on this. I don't want to let this part of me fade away. Um, I thought that conversation between him and Jane, though they were sort of talking about very different things of why they don't want to let this part of themselves go. Um, I thought that that was just a very powerful sort of break to, a breakthrough for both of them uh, because it's a lot of it's it's decades of harm, self, uh, harm, self-harm and violence that they are all unpacking. Of course, it's going to take more than a season to deal with it. And I loved the counterpoint of the scene that made me cry was him getting to see John and to basically be with John while he was dying. Um, that entire episode, I was just like, it is misty in here. Um, oh, it was beautiful. It was just beautiful. Um, and it really connects to, I mean, this is a case for me where like, the um the character is inseparable from the project of the actor playing him since matt bomer since he came out has made it sort of a you know unique talents as activism kind of project to um represent queer stories and especially um sort of the history of gay men um and he sees that as sort of like part of his purpose being a prominent actor and you really see it in all of those um, reconciliations with both his, um, his sort of, I wrote in my notes, his, his nuclear family, LOL, and, uh, and his sort of chosen family, which begins with John and also incorporates um, the sort of the rest of the Doom Patrol crew and incorporates the negative spirit, which I kind of mm-hmm. want to kick to everybody else because really season two set up a lot of work for what we hope is season three, where he gets to reconcile with the negative spirit in perhaps the way that he's already been able to um, reconcile or at least move towards reconciling a lot of his past with other humans. I, I love his interaction with Moscow because you have this example where he sees this woman and she's like, well, I did this. And he's like trying to say, well, how if she was able to reconcile the negative spirit with herself and function, then why can't I do it? And it's such a common way that people end up comparing themselves when they've handled a crisis or handling some form of disability or trauma and like, well, they are able to do it. I can't, I must be bad. I must be fucked up in some way. And you know, it's to the extent it's good for him to see her embracing it and living with it because it gives him a sense of what might be possible. But it's also not good for him to say that he has to have the same standard as her. She had a very different experience of it all than he did, especially because she was in space. You know, um, and the whole thing with the two memory, the two got the the the, the two um, other astronauts who are with her who are basically just re- re- memories on repeat on replay. That was like a really amazing touch as well but um 
But yeah, the interactions with Moscow and sort of looking at like there are different ways of interacting with the spirit that's inside you. Um, and, and uh, you know, I talked about this more in my, my earlier coverage, but just like the whole notion of like embracing the negative spirit is really potent um, because it's something that we're told not to do. And it's something that he has to do in order to move forward. Yeah, I thought I I loved Moscow. I loved that episode. Um, and I thought, I, I think it's very interesting that you're sort of bringing up disability um, in your in the comparison between the two, because I think a lot of, um, and I, I will not say that I have any experience um, of uh, a disability um, to the extent of some of the things that, uh, like, that... Um, that many, many folks experience as well as what is generally portrayed on screen uh, when when disabled exp- lived experiences are portrayed on screen. But you have these episodes or these storylines um, that show up when you have a disabled um, character on screen, whether or not it is someone who actually has a disability, uh, which is not as as often as it should be um, that like disabled actors get to play disabled characters. But um, I thought like it's when you have those sort of stories where a disabled character sees, um, sees an, uh, an older disabled character who is experiencing their, like their life and being like, and it's, it's, it's shown as this, Oh, like disability can be lived with like that, which, we, we know you can there there are experiences um like we like disabled people live whole lives and are are moving with um with dignity and grace and should be given those resources um to be able to do so uh we it's not it's not discussed i i don't see this was the sort of the first one of the first experiences that i saw where it was questioning um, well, the idea of, well, if they're able to do it, I should be able to do it using that exact same method. Like, this is how I learn to live with this part of me that I don't understand. This is, and, and then, um, and then if you're not able to do the exact same thing, what, well, what is it in my bro? Like, is it something broken about me? No, it's that I have a different journey. Um, I thought that that was really wonderful because I thought that, um, because because whether because everyone has a different experience of um, especially in those communities of chronic illness of disability there might be overlaps but um, we all sort of uh, anyone who has something of that nature is going to have their own unique sort of journey and I thought that it was very respectful to show Moscow as someone who um, who has learned to embrace her negative spirit, but also she had completely different circumstances than Larry. So Larry's experience of reconciling with his uh, his disability, um, whether or not we call the negative spirit a disability, um, but with his negative spirit is going to be completely different. Yeah, I love Moscow. I hope we get to see more of Moscow. I feel like there's something sinister about her and I hope we get to find out what it is. Um, And one of the things I really loved about that episode and that setup was that 
um, one of the problems that is sort of at the intersection of disability and queerness is the problem of passing. And Moscow is a person who passes. Like, she's no longer irradiating 100%. everything in her path. She is not burned over her entire body. Um, uh, she, she doesn't have a lot of the, a lot of the, um, physical markers, um, that Larry is always going to have, even if he's able to work with his negative spirit in a different way. And, um, and Larry's kind of shame at not being able to do what Moscow has been able to do. A big part of his shame to me was in like, not just his shame at, you know, not being able to like wrangle his negative spirit in the way that she'd been able to, but really connecting it to all the ways that even if he were able to do that, like, is his life really going to be that much better if he can take off the bandages? Like, how are people going to look at him then? Mm, that's really powerful. Um, well, I, one of the, the other pieces is that we actually have, well, who see a character who seems at least at first to be disabled in a way that doesn't connect to any particular kind of superpowers, but then, in fact, does. Um, and that's Ronnie Evers. And she is a love interest for Cyborg. And they are indeed adorable together. And it was really exciting to see a dark-skinned, beautiful Black woman who, whose character has disabilities on a show. Um, but then she ends up actually having powers in the end anyhow. Uh, I, I was I was looking online to see like if there were any black disabled women who'd written about the character um, and I hadn't seen anything, which breaks my heart. And I, I hope that some folks do write about that aspect because I think it's complicated and sensitive and I haven't really seen anything. Um, I thought it was pretty exciting like you know you have her well you have you know when, when she takes off her shirt and they're like going to have sex and you can see the scars and it's not treated as anything gross or awful it's just part of her body it's kind of beautiful and interesting in its own way um and that's pretty special and cool and she's a compelling character and like you know you're sitting here hoping that he and that she and cyborg are able to make it work and then uh the realities of geopolitics and the world of evil military contractors and all that come, makes things a bit more complicated. Uh, but yeah, the introduction of an actual, like more like relatably somebody who's disabled in a way that like normal people are disabled as opposed to disabled because of an interdimensional spirit kind of situation um, is a, uh, was something that I hadn't seen on the show as much. I mean, aside from Niles Calder's wheelchair usage, which is a bit of its own thing as well. Anyway, if you are a critic who is a woman of color, if you're a black woman, I would really love to see more opinions and thoughts about Ronnie as a character and where the show is taking her. Cause I am sure we have not seen the last of her. Um, but open to hearing from folks about the character as well. Yeah. I loved, I mean, Ronnie seems so set up to be the character you hate in that she's totally separate from all of the other characters um, except for Vic um, and very clearly set up right away as the like love interest that would never exist in real life because like 
you don't date from your support group. Um, like that only happens on TV. You're not supposed to do that. Um, and, but what it ended up being was it was a way for, um, for us to see Vic as really part of, of the, of the crew in a way that he'd always seemed like an outsider. And for him to sort of calibrate his, his morality. And at the same time, she stops almost immediately stops being the just the love interest and very quickly develops her own sort of moral compass that is in a lot of ways at odds with the morality that doom patrol privileges but when you look at it kind of from the outside it's like no her sort of like vigilante sort of revenge motivated um response to what's happened to her is the standard superhero arc like she is what we expect superheroes to be in a certain way whereas um everybody else we've been watching is sort of like yeah okay i guess i'll be robot man um which i love for her as a counterpoint and it allows it gives the show space to really build her into a person yeah, I was a little bit. I was a little bit worried, to be honest, uh, when I was watching um, Ronnie as well as Miranda, who is played wonderfully by Samantha Marie Ware, who I had really loved on Glee. Um, I was a little bit worried about both those characters um, when I first watched them because I was like, uh, like the the two primary black women um, and like darks as well as dark skinned women on this season both felt um a bit villainous and i i wasn't i i was i I guess maybe burned before so i was like i was confused as to whether or not there would be dimensions um to either of them and then also looking into so ronnie seems to be sort of a a character like a gender bent version of a of a different character ronald evers um who was a best friend but then enemy of cyborg um but i thought that um i thought that ronnie was rather um like very very uh, multi-dimensional very understandably hurt by the world but also very capable and confident in the choices that she was making um, I thought the chemistry between her and Vic was lovely, and I thought that Vic um, was one of the characters who was most ready post season one to move forward with his life. Mm-hmm. And so I saw her and him together as like maybe maybe they're at different stages in their journeys. So that, so maybe they weren't quite. Even even if it hadn't happened the way that it ha- ended at this current moment with them, I was like, maybe it's not going to necessarily work out because they seem at different points in their trauma and their healing from their trauma. But they like each other so much that I was like, I wonder what it would have been like if they had just met at a different time, um, which we, we all have that person, I think, at some point in their, our lives. Um, but I thought her, her reasons for her revenge were super understandable. I agree. Um, yep. Yeah. And I think that I'm, I thought it was, um, what was it? I, there was the, ar- these articles about how um, Doom Patrol got cut by an episode because of COVID. And I feel like 
at the point where it ended in the season, I was just going like, is there another moment with, with her or is she being set up to come back through season three? Yeah, I mean, she could definitely end up being a sympathetic villain, but as it feels to me right now, she's not even a villain. Like, oh, you got revenge on Blackwater? Well, someone has to. Yeah, of um, course. <laughs> you know, like that that hasn't happened otherwise. Uh, and I actually also want to shout out how important it was, the sex scene with Cyborg. I, I mentioned this uh, in one of my earlier episodes, and I'll mention it again. If you haven't read the essay... Humanity Not Included, DC's Cyborg and the Mechanization of the Black Body by the writer Son of Baldwin, which is over on the middlespaces.com website. For the love of God, go read that essay. It's amazing. Um, and it uh, it's just, I, I think it's essential reading. It's not based on Cyborg as portrayed or shown in this show. It's about um, how he's done in the comics. But I think it's important to understanding how we're handling this character. Because basically... I. One of the things that, that that Son of Baldwin points out is that, like, in the world of the comics that are at least as a setup by Wolfman and Perez in the 80s, a cyborg is castrated, right? And, like, what does that mean that this is the Black character that they're going to have show and his complicated relationship with his white girlfriend in the comic? It's like, oh, you're helping me understand why I was always so uncomfortable with this. Meanwhile, the show, I mean, regardless of whether or not, like, I don't want to say that Vic needs to have all of his body parts functioning in a particular function in order for him to have sex or that they have to protect, exist in a particular configuration. They could exist in any number of configurations, but the point is that he has sex, right? And like, we don't need to know what configuration his body is in when he has sex. And he, we don't have to know that, but we do know that he is cyborg and he has sex. And that's really important. The cyborg who fucks. Yes. I'm like, good on you. You know, there's a lot of sex this season. It was interesting. Um, You know, I just finished the season finale. So I have the world's worst sex party at the top of my mind, having just seen that. Um, It made me forget about how nice, sort of, I guess, the sex ghosts were from earlier. Um, But definitely, like, sex and physical intimacy are a a big theme in this season, more so than before. And, uh, I, I, you know, with the the whole story in the final episode with Miranda slash Jane and and her complete scummy boyfriend who does legit does a nice job singing a Dylan song when he's outside of her bake shop, like in the Midwest, um, it is so just you see this terrible tragedy coming in slow motion. Everybody's costumes are perfect, um, and. You know, the scene where she's being, like, raped and cycling through these different characters in her mind to try to find one who will actually enjoy the situation that she's in is, like, such a great use of showing you how she developed to be who she is and how these powers can possibly at times protect her psychologically. Um by the same token, I did not like when she told all of the women at the party that she knew for sure that they weren't having a good time themselves. Like, Jane, we're going to speak from our personal experiences of what you do or do not oh, yeah. the sex party. Do not tell other women how to feel about their participation in the sex party. That said, fuck her fucking boyfriend. He's a complete molester, piece of shit, whatever. Um, 
but uh, where was I going with this? Yeah, I don't know. Thoughts about sex in season two? <laughs> I um, I mean, I wanted to yeah, backtrack yeah. just a little for a second and note that we're leaving out one black woman who's really important, which is morally Ooh. corrupt. Um, and the, the reason she's important, in addition to being awesome, um, and the fact that she's linked through queerness to Larry and through blackness to Vic in ways that are not subtle in season one, but become mm-hmm. more subtle when she reappears later. Like that's important. But the reason I want to draw attention to her as we're thinking about Miranda and about Ronnie is that she is a reformed villain that she enters Danny in order to like take him in and mm. or take them in. I'm misgendering Danny. I'm so sorry um, that, uh, that, that to take Dan- Danny down and instead discovers herself and discovers right. her own goodness. Um, and so I feel like having her as a counterpoint to these other two black women means something that I, I can't quite pull out of it. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, uh, one morally corrupt, uh, corrupt is one of my favorite characters. And I think the, the level of, uh, piece that she sort of brings um, and wisdom with with having gone through her own journey um, uh, to to the interaction she has with Vic and with um, Larry uh, I think is is just the kind of it's it, it was almost just like the the kind of friend that you uh, that you want in your corner um, and I I just felt very comforted every time she was on screen i also uh sex and doom patrol i feel like i the the most the the episode that uh resonated with me so much was sex patrol and it's not just because the sex men are just a great piece of imagination and shout out to whoever the comic writers are who came up with them because they are they are if that was ghostbusters then i would have watched ghostbusters sooner um but i I thought Sex Patrol had uh, just a kind of strangely wonderful take on consent and on um, and on self empowerment with Rita, who I think Rita has just one of the most wonderful um, sort of coming of age stories for all these immortal uh, immortal characters um, that I just across these two seasons I just. I have a hard time explaining um, what it is exactly that I really love about her, but I think that she just rose into this person who I just felt like I was reading for all the time, and I and 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 I thought she she just felt like the epitome of a person, especially a woman with a, like a very complicated relationship with her body, which I think that, um, uh, that is, is an experience that I think many can resonate with. Um, and, and that you start to maybe hopefully, um, understand, better understand your own body as you get older, as you have more experience, but you still, uh, like for me, like I, I would say like that, like, I still feel a long way from complete control over an understanding of my own body body and so i thought that like just the idea that she knew that like um that uh conventional sex was something that was 
maybe not possible for her and didn't even know if that was something she even wanted but what she wanted was an orgasm and um mm-hmm. there is one uh, one man who she knows will be able to give it to her and that's flex and i just love flex as a character altogether but because he is he beyond that his powers are just absolutely fabulous um he is a muscle man who is never very very overtly sexual or sexualized even while acting in a sexual sort of way i mean that the the episode where he gives an entire danny the street and all of its inhabitants an orgasm that that is not sexualized that is played for just ridiculousness um but her but in this episode she is asking his help to get control over her body and he respects it that there's there's no there's no sort of bravado there's not there's no smugness there's not awkwardness um he 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 has protocols he he is doing he's he's working from a respect and consent oriented mindset um and she is working from an empowered an empowered perspective and i just thought all of that before the apocalyptic sex to a demon was fabulous i love your take i love your take on that thank you yeah i think i feel like doom patrol um has a challenging relationship with the idea of um disability and sexuality um in all kinds of ways because for various reasons some of them directly related to power some of them like jane's being more related to her past trauma um it's a group of people who for various reasons um can't have sex the way we think of people having sex um so the simultaneous orgasm was for everybody (laughs) um except for robot man who cannot feel um, I know was was such a direct like if you haven't been looking at this yet look at it now um, and I feel like all of the returns to that moment and all of the ways that the second season drew attention to um, all of these people negotiating the limitations of their bodies and their minds in that respect um, has been really fascinating Um and I love Flex. I just, again, it's like all of these recurring characters that you just want more of. And you know if they were in any epi- every episode, you'd get real tired of them. But you're just like, please let that not be the end of this person. because They, um, they know how to balance their ensemble very, very well. Because I, I don't think I've found a character that I'm bored with. And interestingly, a lot of season two was about having different pairings of characters go off and have adventures together. And I was literally like beginning an episode. I think I turned to Frank and said, you know, we never really get to see Jane and, and, and um, negative man interact. And then suddenly it's the episode where Jane and negative man go on a trip together. I was like, okay, yeah, we haven't seen that particular pairing of characters go and do something together yet. Like it was kind of putting people with different people together and seeing what kind of experiences they go and have together and how they play off each other. Um, And that was really great. 
thinking back to other small characters, uh, the, the time, Dr. Time, whatever, the guy with the clock head, I love the fact that he's like not actually a bad guy and they shouldn't kill him, basically. He's just like partying and they don't know how else to deal with getting the power they were trying to get. And it's sort of tragic. And um, I think we should all go back and like fix his disco arena clockhead situation. I think that was episode two. And time, time Doctor Time. The biggest thing that I just thought watching the his his episode, I was just it, it was just him and Red Jack were both just a good balance of characters with depth characters who are ridiculous can't ridiculously and wildly campy and characters who are just incredibly powerful um and probably like like it it felt like the balance that they had with both those characters meant that they needed like one episode um because if if it was extended out i don't know if i i might have gotten tired of them but in one episode i'm just like yeah just give give Dr. Time his never-ending disco ro- roller skate party in peace. Like, just, like, let him have that serenity. Um, and and I'm, I'm rooting for that roller party still. Yeah, for real. And that outfit. You know, one thing that I commented a lot more about in season one than I did in this one was the, the music. Uh, I, you know, I, I mentioned the sort of Dylan moment, but uh, I really, I really loved Cyborg crying while listening to Pictures of You, um, because that's a thing that pe- by the Cure, because that's a thing that people do. Um, but I don't remember that many music moments from this season, and it maybe has to reflect. Maybe it's like stuff that I just don't listen to. Whereas, like in season one, there was a ton of music so- music moments where I was like, I'm like, ah, you're T Rex, hooray, and like things that stand out to me. Uh, did I miss anything from season two? If you guys remember season two from season one, I suppose might be less was, clear to you. Because it's usually such a preoccupation of mine. I was going through is like, there is there music I want to talk about? And I kept going back to like, not really. Like there were certainly well thought out music cues, but especially comparing with some of the other um, things I've been, again, my pandemic viewing, like that have had music moments that have just been, so on the nose and some of them are far lesser shows as a whole but i almost feel like doom patrol step up your game do some music stuff because i felt like it wasn't hitting in the way that i wanted to i mean season one for me had really amazing music cues and if you want to hear me ramble about them i already have but i just didn't see much in this one other than listening to the cure and i had to wonder if maybe they have less budget to spend I also I'm I'm on the other side of this. I was perfectly fine with there not being um, sort of soundtrack moments, more like music, like when when Jane is betrayed by Miranda and she finds the bodies of the other personalities in the well, and you're finally in the well. I was sort of just that the score moment was just very striking to me yeah. um but like and like i thought i thought that they were weaponizing their score particularly well in this season um i i felt a lot of dread i felt a lot of sort of pain just like in in instruments versus in uh music and i think that there is a mo- there is a tendency now whether it's 
uh, I don't know, like the Trent Reznorizing of like um, of of trailers and and haunting versions of I don't know, Sweet Dreams or something. Like I <laughs> or or using like I think Umbrella Academy just feels, and I I say this loving Umbrella Academy, but wishing it was a lot weirder. And so I'm really enjoying Doom Patrol. Um, uh, Umbrella Academy loves using like music budget for fights or for style and i feel like i i don't know if it was a budget choice or if it was a or if it was a personal choice but i felt like doom patrol not leaning on that showed a lot of confidence hmm you know it occurs to me i bet there was something good done in her fight between baby dolls fight with um oh i'm absolutely certain <laughs> I'm suddenly not remembering what it would have been, which is going to kill me. And as soon as this written recording, I will remember. And then I'll be like, ah, I have so many thoughts. <laughs> <sighs> Such as life for not taking more complete notes. Um, so, you know, I, one of the things that I feel like I differ from your take on when is with the chief. I am not sympathetic to him at all. Um, it was kind of cool seeing like, okay, he actually was, you know, an indigent child in the Victorian age, like getting in a, you know, and how that growing up in that context might impact some of the, excuse me, the decisions that he makes later in life. Cause he's like literally not a modern man. Right. But um, I think he's a bad dad and a bad person and has, has priorities all messed up. Um, and it's ultimately about control and his own his own powers and not really generous about others at all. So I don't know, Sarah, how you feel about I am <laughs> like I am farther in your direction than you are even, I think. I think of um I think of the chief especially in season two as like, what if everybody just acknowledged that Charles Xavier was a piece of shit? Was a bad guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, um, that is actually why I like him is that I think that he is actually acknowledging like further than I think any adaptation of Xavier from the comics uh, like to the screen like acknowledging that like Charles Xavier is a piece of shit um, and is is a is a character who has too much confidence in himself and his his ability and I think I, I wonder if that is intentional because when I listen to uh, Timothy Dalton's portrayal of the chief um the way that he especially uses his voice and to to just great depths of playing kindness um i i think it's i wonder if it's just intentional to just say that like this is this is something that someone could easily fall for um as as a trusting uh as a character to trust, but is actually deeply flawed, deeply untrustworthy, and everyone who is mad at him has every right to be. Uh, yeah, and one of the fascinating things is that he keeps saying over and over in various ways, I have to do this because I'm trying to be a good father. I had to imprison my child in a living street for 80 years because I'm a good father. I ha- um, And then the two characters who are actually fathers who 
um, raised children to at least more of an extent than he did are sitting there going, no. And I think it's wonderful and one of the better tricks that season two plays that while the chief is saying over and over, um, fatherly duty this, fatherly duty that, Cliff and Larry are both in their own ways trying to sort of um, acknowledge their failings as fathers and find ways to um, recover what they can and let go of what they can't. Um, and I, we haven't said a whole lot about Cliff because Cliff, but what the thing that really did work for me about him in season two was his grief at, at not being able to be a father and his refusal to give up doing destructive and self-destructive things um, recognizing what it actually does mean to be a good parent in a way that the chief refuses to see. Mm. Yeah. I would also say that um, I actually was very, I'm, I'm glad that you brought up Larry and uh, Larry and uh, robot man as um, good examples of this because I was, uh, I was thinking solely of Silas um, and Silas right. is much more of a season one character than season two. And I think he's the more obvious example because he's, he's developed. I think he's been developed in a way that's supposed to be direct foil which I think was good because Cyborg's not a not a Doom Patrol character from the on the comics right. side, so I think that like using Silas to be almost a bridge um, for both Vic's characterization as well as Niles's was I think very smart. But I think Silas's brief uh, sort of appearances in this season was to sort of further show that while he is cold and distant, while he has made very many mistakes same as Niles has, Niles is willing to hurt other people and to keep on hurting people mm -hmm. in the pursuit of doing uh, what he believes is right. And, and he fails that, whereas Silas will not, like, will not uh, compromise his morals. And I think, though he does not, I think both characters fail on the I, like on the thing of like it's not just saying the words I'm sorry you also have to make it right I think mm -hmm. that Silas Silas is trying still trying to not compromise what is the right thing to do um, makes seeing Niles as a bad man a lot more stark that's that's really legit so are there things that we have not hit yet that we want to be sure to hit? Um, I wanted, we have talked enough about Danny, but we have not talked enough about Danny. I'm just sort of going through my notes and like the one thing we haven't really covered that I really feel the need to speak to as a non-binary viewer of this show is why Danny is such a uniquely good non-binary representation. And it made me think of the, announcement this week that Star Trek Discovery is adding a non-binary character played by a non-binary actor and looking at the promo photos of this character and going oh good it's another non-binary person on TV who doesn't really look like me and doesn't really present their gender the way I do and the fact that we do just because we're sort of imprisoned in our own sort of ideas of binary gender sort of read non-binary people in ways that 
bad buyers people don't want to be read um that danny because danny doesn't have a physical human body um is sort of you're not looking at danny and seeing um somebody who has traces of femininity or somebody who has traces of masculinity that you're mapping onto their body that danny just is um Uh and that that's really empowering to see as a non-binary viewer in a way that even watching most actual non-binary with a non-binary actor playing the character um isn't always for me as a viewer that's really interesting yeah and i was thinking about the star trek casting just the other day because it is also nice to have you know a non like i'm non-binary because i'm a space alien like no you're just non-binary because you're non-binary like character in the star trek at last (laughs) i think the only thing that i would say in addition to this and just it's just because i I walked into this far after both season one and season two had aired um, was that I had no one said anything to me about Danny the street. I had no idea. Oh my. I had no idea what, like who or what Danny the street was. I didn't know anything. I, there were no posters. There were no, but there was no, like a, no one who was recommending the show was talking about Danny the street. And so I, I also didn't see things like announcing Doom Patrol to have a non-binary character. Um, and so I, I loved that it was just, yes, this is, this is happening. And it was, it felt, it felt like I wasn't getting a super special non-binary moment at last. Um, and it was fleeting. It was just, it was just part of and organic to the show. And, and it's, it, and that, that it is based on um that it's a it's a character that is appearing in the comics that makes sense but i also felt like that that's just how representation should be that it i i understand when there's announcements like star trek uh getting itself together to get uh, get a character on screen um uh but i i don't want I don't want discourse about like announcements and interviews about like, Oh, this, this is this, our representation is better than their representation, which was something that I really didn't like about the, the new mutants, uh, uh, the new mutants talk about their queer relationship versus some Disney things. Um, mm-hmm. I just want you to just do good work. And so I think, yes, Danny, the street is there a sentient urban geography, <laughs> that can that can do do what it wants at its own will um but i but it also just felt like something like the way that you would interact with other people in the world is that yes they they are there they are non-binary they are trans they are they are gender non-conforming and they had a world before you and they will have a world after you and they are unique and wonderful. That's just how life is, <laughs> like how you meet people. And so I, I felt really lovely, like, like I felt really glad to sort of meet Danny in that way. And I want representation to work with that. Hmm. Well, I want to thank you guys for both joining me. I actually... Uh, 
Sarah, did we have a conversation about the the um, the death of the way that the show handled back in season one the death of Larry Trainer's uh, partner? What was his name? Oh John. my gosh, John! Thank you. Did we we did we talk about that? I feel like I quoted you so, uh, on the show about it, and yet it doesn't make sense that you would have even seen it at that point. But saying that it was the end that we were that we were supposed to have gotten for Cap and Bucky. Uh, it sounds like something I would say, but I think I said it more recently. I think I said it like when I'd seen it. Uh, okay. And it is, I, you know what? I think I did, like I saw it and then we were talking about it. Like, this is so, this is the ending that we all wanted for Cap and Buffy. And that despite Marvel being, knowing full damn well that there was a large number of fans who would have liked at least a nod to that, um, that it just doubled down on the look, look how straight he is. Um, and that, I mean, we could probably go into a lot of depth about how um, Larry is what happens when you actually try to make Captain America. Um, yeah. But that it did give us the satisfaction. And I loved that it, that the show that is so often so invested in not just letting them be happy for a minute, that, that, that this is one of the few times that Doom Patrol just said, okay, we're just going to give you that final scene with them together and that, and acknowledging that they've never stopped loving each other and acknowledging with regret, but also with great love that if Larry had been, had shown up at John's door at any point in his life, John would have taken him. Ah, my heart. And, you know, like, thank you for, for, you know, having a show like this DC, you know, I, I know that my friend from college who works on the show is a gay man himself. And I'm sure that that helps with some of this as well. Um, so for our listeners, uh, just last, uh, let, remind our listeners where they can find you on the internet, Sarah, where, where are you hanging out these days? I am mostly like avoiding Twitter, but to the extent that I am there, I am Padasha, which is P-A-S-D-E underscore C-H-A-T. My website, which is finally going to have new content soon, um, is thefinersports.com. Those are really the places to find me. And awesome. And when, where can we uh, keep up with you on the internet as well? Primarily Twitter, which is, I'm at, at W Perry Asami. That's W P as in Peter, E R as in Rick, I Y A S A M Y on Twitter. And folks should definitely follow when if you want to see some invitations to some really great online fundraising parties that are actually fun and that you will actually enjoy from the comfort of your home. And as for me, I'm on Twitter a little bit too much at E-L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn. That's E-L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn. Um, And as we always like to say, keep it geeky.